Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. My biggest disappointment, that's too easy. My biggest disappointment was when my wife at the time took my child, took my cars, burned my clothes, and stuff like that. Biggest disappointment is she drove across country with my child. And uh, that was my biggest disappointment. But I think that right, that right there actually fueled my fire. So that was my, big, my biggest disappointment, but that right there actually boosted my uh, mentality. Now I started to realize how life was and how life is, how bad it is, especially when making it being in the pros of being successful, how it can turn from good to ugly real quick and still trying to focus on playing basketball at the same time. So that really right there actually built me up mentally. So that was my, my good and the bad story right there. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It's very unusual for me to be doing this show the way I'm doing this show, but this was a very unusual, unique, and special podcast with a guy I'm so excited to introduce you to in the format of our show, Industry Standard, and I'm talking about five-time NBA world champion and Hall of Famer, Dennis Rodman. And as my mother once said, don't judge a book by its cover. And Dennis Rodman is one of the most special, unique, soft-spoken, has such a great heart, wonderful personality, unique perspective on life and the world, and just had an amazing time with him. And it was an unusual thing because I kept trying to get him to do it and I couldn't get him to do it and I finally got him to agree. And at the last minute he told me, well, I can't come to the office, but I can do it in my friend's bar called the Class of 47 in Newport Beach. So if you don't know anything about Newport Beach and its relationship to Los Angeles, it's about an hour and a half away south going towards San Diego and Mexico. It's between Long Beach and San Diego. And get to this place, and it looks like a neighborhood bar, but right by the ocean and the docks. 
It's really, really special. And you walk in in this neighborhood bar, and I'm thinking class of 47, the person who owns this has to be close to 90. And I realize what's going on, because every picture on the wall is a picture of John Wayne. And I asked the woman who was so nice there what that was all about, and she said that John Wayne owned this bar, and the new owners kept it the way it was, and really, really wonderful aura of the place if you ever want to check it out. It's just a real neighborhood special place with a bar and some pool tables and just the basics, but has a great, great vibe. But not a really great place to do a podcast. There's music playing, there's people coming in and out, and I'm wondering how we're going to do this. And I realized that I shouldn't even worry about this. So it's going to be a little noisy. So the quality isn't going to be as great. The bottom line is, when I was swimming at Boston University, I never cared whether the pool was this pristine pool at Harvard or if it was this pool that wasn't as nice at, let's say, Quinnipiac College. It didn't matter. What mattered was what you did with the facility you had. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to have a great time with Dennis Rodman. We're going to have an amazing, amazing conversation. And it's going to be fun. And the audience is going to be accepting of the fact, hey, there might be some noise, there might be some people talking, but we'll do the best we can. The reason why I'm in my office right now doing the cold open instead of in front of Dennis Rodman is a little while before Dennis came, I got a text from his agent, Darren Prince, great guy, that I had 30 minutes. And you know me, 30 minutes, I mean, I don't even know what to do in 30 minutes. I can't do anything in 30 minutes. So I made the decision then and there that I was going to scrap my cold open and I was just going to be in a situation where I interview him and make him feel as comfortable as possible because I had met him before once with my other son and had a great time for a short period of time and he signed over some jerseys to my sons and this time I brought my other son there and I thought let's just scrap the cold open there and I'll record it another time which is what I'm doing now and so that gave me more time to hang with Dennis more time for you guys to listen to what he had to say and I thought it was the best thing to do, and it all worked out perfectly, as you're going to see. What I want to share with you guys today is something very unique for this cold open. I'm not going to do it the way I normally do it. Because I thought to myself, what can I do that can sort of let people know how special this episode is in a way that relates to all of you? And I thought the only way to honor the audience, as much as I really, really honored this interview and conversation and sitting down with Dennis was to look through all of the letters, the FedExes, the long emails that I've gotten from people, the Facebook messages, and go through all of them and see if there was something that somebody wrote that related to what I felt, not just for myself, but also what Dennis Rodman probably felt along the way through his life and career. And I looked through everything. I've looked through thousands and thousands of letters, and I found one that really, really spoke to me. 
and from a really great actor and writer who is a big fan of the show. His name is Eric Biggers, and I want to read this to you again. I've never done this before, but this really spoke to me. It spoke to me because I really, really appreciated my time with Dennis Rodman. After hearing his story, I really appreciated my life and how lucky I feel to be in the position I'm in. And after it was all done and I shook his hand and my son got a signed ball and photos, I really, really felt the highest level of appreciation. And so without further ado, I want to read to you this letter, almost more like an essay that I got from Eric Biggers called Appreciation. I live in a world void of appreciation. I live in a world where excess equals success where the pioneering technological wonders of things such as human flight and energy harnessing are barely given a passing glance, let alone appreciation. Clean water, warm beds, fire at our fingertips, all disregarded as simple privileges. Television, fucking television, is seen as a given, Everyday life is filled with the unappreciated. We drive to and from jobs we hate in cars, buses, and trains. We lock the doors to our brick houses and take off our cotton clothes and leather shoes. We turn on the faucet so that running water flows into a tub so that we may bathe. We towel off, sit on the couch, and watch our flat-screen TVs complete with remote controls and thousands of channels. We then walk along the carpet to our bedrooms and slip into the sheets that cover our mattresses, but not before turning out the light using the switch on the wall. Sometimes we make a phone call using a cell phone. Think about that for a minute. Cell phones are seen as run-of-the-mill, obvious things that are going to be there and should be there. Does anybody really think about what goes into a simple telephone call or text message and how it's sent? How complicated and elaborate the process is? Or hell, even how the damn phone itself was built? The fact that I, an average man in Indiana, can press a few buttons and instantly be connected to and talking with another person, almost regardless of their positioning on the globe, that still fascinates me. It also humbles me how very small I am. The same altruistic feeling is attained by staring at the stars and knowing, thanks again to so much dedication and work by history's great scientific and astrological minds, just how much distance is between us and them. How everything had to fall in perfect order so that I may be here, typing these words, saying these words, and spilling these thoughts. 
Do you realize how absolutely perfect, down to the smallest detail in DNA and atomic particles and human free will and elemental realm, everything had to come together in order for you and I to happen? Why don't more people appreciate this? We become so consumed by our own little lives that we become bigger than ourselves. We forget what is important and tend to become lost in what society has carved out for us. If we get too far from where we come from, wherever that is, we may never be able to find our way back. Not only is technology and the like unappreciated, but so is love and compassion and time and friendships. Speaking as someone who tries to appreciate and love as much as I can, I can say that it is hardly ever reciprocated. I cherish every moment I have with those I care most about and love because I don't know for sure that I'll ever see them again. It is such an alien concept to most that it, well, alienates those who implicate it. We are deemed the perpetual sideline squatters. This saddens me for the obvious reasons and is also a serious drain on the psyche, but also because it adds to the endless loop of love and loss that we seem to perpetually delve into. We again become so entranced by what holds us back and what we don't have that we don't see what we have right in front of us. This is not aided in any way by my generation's infatuation with this whole fuck feelings movement, or the feels, whatever the hell soulless title you want to give that which should fill you up with life and wonder. These feelings have been substituted with hatred, ego, bitterness, and fuck buddies. We spend so much time focusing on the negative that we fail to feel what makes us feel good. Most people complain that all they see on the news is bad news, terrorism, murder, and violence. They'll say that's what the government or so other seemingly in control body wants us to see. The truth is, it's what you want to see. They would not air those images if they knew you wanted to see the good news. Nobody watches trash TV like Jerry Springer and Maury Povich to get the feels when a baby finds his daddy or a stripper confesses she's a man. We watch it to judge those people and subconsciously look down upon them, thanking our respective deity that we are nothing like those people, that we are somehow better than them. Maybe we're not after all. I feel like Tom Hanks' character in Castaway after he's rescued and sees the world a great deal differently than he used to. After spending days and shedding blood trying to build a fire on the island, he now has a lighter click whoosh after befriending a volleyball for four years. He now is talking to his old best friend with ice cubes in his glass, no less. After painstakingly hunting for crab and fish for so long and often failing, he now scoffs at the bright orange and friendly boiled king crab legs and fried salmon on the table. He also had the unfortunate experience of losing the love of his life. Twice. Toward the last few moments of the film, 
They're sitting in a car together after having just passionately kissed for the first time in the four years she thought he was dead. The look on her face says that she's ready to go with him and leave the life she pieced together after his death behind. He finally tells her that she has to go home, and so he drives her there, just up the driveway, in their old car, one last time. In that regard, he was lucky. He knew that was the last kiss, the last moment he'd ever have with her. The passion and heaviness is genuine, accurate, and felt we should all be so lucky. That's Hollywood. That's a fairy tale. Yes, it is. Sadly, on the bright side, we have the power to make it a reality. Cherish each other. Appreciate them and everything around you. People say we can't all be saints. Why the hell not? Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, Instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Being with the family got you to the NBA. Yeah. Put that together for us. How do you make that connection? Well, I think the fact is that it was more like um, they actually cared about each other. And I never saw that. I never saw that before because when I stayed there for a year, and the little kids said, well, just to let you know, when my dad gets pissed off and mad, he will take us in the truck and drive three miles that way. I'm like, why three miles? He said, you'll find out when you go that three miles that way and three miles this way. All right, great. So I did something wrong. I did something, <laughs> did something wrong, he said. Uh, he, said he said, let's go take a ride in the truck. I'm like, oh, God, this is what he's talking about. <laughs> so his father disciplined you even though you were 23 years old. So you go with a ride with the father in the truck. What happens? Well, right, the father, and he's just bitching and cussing at me like a father, like a father figure, right? That bitch is telling me what's right and wrong. He said, I know in your, in your neighborhood that you never had no, no, no parenting guidance. I know that, you know, stuff like that. But here we teach our kids right and wrong. And I just like, all of a sudden, come back, I'm all emotional and shit. Little kid come up to me and said, 
What do you think? I said, like, what do you think? What do you think? He said, yeah, he got you too, huh? I said, yeah. I said, I see what you mean. Um, and every time we got into trouble, and I'm 23 now, and I'm like, he'll take us ride in the truck, you know, give us a little another picture of what we should do and what we should not do. So, And uh, he taught me the way to, to live life. Work hard, and when you work hard, good things come to you. And every day, we'll get up at 5.30 in the morning, Go get the cows, go get the tractor, go get the hay, go do this. I mean, every day, every day. I mean, every day before you go to school. In the summertime, it's hot out there, 100 degrees, and you fly on the fields, you done hay. I mean, oh my God, 12 hours a day, man. And that right there, that, that actually stuck to me for a long time because I said, wow, this is awesome. This is awesome. So that, that, I just transcended that to my basketball player because I played so hard. And I worked so hard, but to get in there. All right, so that's amazing. You're kicking ass in college. Tell me the best college basketball player you ever played against and what your experiences were with that person. Yeah, his name was Dennis Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. Best player I played against in college. I played against myself pretty much because my coaches used to just to work me of all the players. I mean, you heard the story back in the of all the players, he worked me the hardest. Oh my God, yeah, I was the hardest. But you know, but I loved it though. I was just telling my sons this. Sometimes they get upset when the coach keeps taking them aside, taking them aside. I said you should be grateful that they're taking. But they tick on me more than anybody else. No, that means that you're special. Yeah, I actually do. I mean, they, they do it today. They even do it. I see my son. You know, he's like my son's like six eight at 14, 14 years old. Six eight and. Uh, I mean, 15, 15 now. He's six eight, so I mean, they. I mean, every game, I'm like, they keep calling his name, keep calling his name, DJ, DJ. I'm like, oh my god. And I hear all the parents talking, DJ, DJ. God, you gotta do this. I'm like, oh. And, and I see why because they know he, my son's very good at six eight. He's very good. I'm surprised, you know, that I won't take him to China to play basketball this summer. You know, because he's that good at four fifteen. Should send him the Mike Shashevsky's basketball game. <laughs> well, <laughs> should. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but that, you know, they're not trying. They're not trying to get on you. They're just trying to push you, push you, because they know that something that that's there. They know something that's there. That's right. Okay, so taking on that thought in college, you finally realize you got something there. You finally realize, hey, there's a chance. I believe I can play professional basketball. Tell me the game. Or, or the day it happened when you believed you could be a professional basketball player? It wasn't no game or nothing. It was the fact that my coaches, my coaches just always just say, dude, you can go to the NBA. You can go to the NBA. You'll be the first player in the school history to go to the NBA. I said, all right, great. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. And then I was three years All-American, and they were saying, I go in a, in a rec room in the gym and play pool or whatever, and I hear my name. Well, Dennis Rodman, first team All-American. And people were running, running in the cafeteria. First team All American. I said, what is, what is that? I didn't know what that was. I think mean, I thought that was like, you know, like I, like I got a trophy or something. You know, so they said, no, do you? First team All American. I mean, you're one of the best players in the world. I mean, in, in the United States. I said, all right, great. The next year come. First team All American. Oh, my God. Okay, great. I'm, I'm most valuable player in NIA. I was like, okay, great, cool. Then I started to get the wind of it now, my second year into the college. I started getting, wait a minute. I'm feeling that I can actually play in the NBA. And my coaches always say, I told you you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. When so, do the agents start coming by and when do the professional team scouts come by and say, we'd like to sit down with you? What year? Is that your senior year? Senior year, like in 
April of 86. And How many agents courted you? Well, I think the fact that they didn't really know me as a player because they knew all the other players, you know, like you can say Duke and all the, all the, big, all the big universities around the world. So I was playing against those guys now. So they, they um, invited me to go to these, these big tournaments around. Like, it's like, more like the mini combines they have now. Yeah. It's more like that. And no one knew me, so I, I went to one in Portsmouth, Virginia. Yeah. It was, it was probably the biggest one they had back then. And it was, every player in the world was there. So I went there, and I think I averaged 20 and 18 rebounds a game. Well, I guess all these other guys, that's when H started to come up to me and said, can I talk to you? And I, I don't know what, you know, I'm so stupid. I don't know. I said, yeah, go ahead. So I won the most valuable player in that tournament out of all those guys. Like out of 300 some guys, I won the most valuable player. Then we go to Hawaii. We go to Hawaii. I get invited to Hawaii camp. They still got it though. And I went to, I actually got most valuable player there. I was averaging 20 some points, 16, 17 rebounds a game. And um, then we go to the, the biggest camp, that's Chicago. The biggest camp they have now, even still today, they got from Chicago. And I got there, I guess I was nervous or whatever. I got pneumonia. I had pneumonia, I couldn't, I couldn't function. And, and I've always had asthma, always had asthma. So I, I try to use the inhaler. Didn't worry, but they said, you got a fever, you got pneumonia. So I, I played anyway. I played anyway, I averaged like eight points and seven rebounds and stuff like that. So then that's when my draft stock went down. That's when the Detroit Pistons gonna drop me at number 11. Number 11 in the draft. That went from 11 to 25th. And for me, I think that was another blessing in this guys. Thank God, right? You know, after all, I could've went to Milwaukee, Bucks and whatever, and it was like a whole different story, but Detroit picked me, and uh, that was it. Got it. Awesome. And so talk about your early influences and what happened when you arrive at a professional basketball camp and you're faced across from all the locker room with all these people that you saw on television. How is it as an NBA rookie coming in to a situation like that with a coach who's one of the greatest coaches of all time? Oh, yeah. I was more at odd at anything because I couldn't believe it. I actually left. Texas and left Oklahoma. I never been anywhere. I mean, I never been outside Texas. You know, it's like people say, "Well, we never, we never experienced going to Hawaii. We never going to LA. We never seen a beach." It was like me more like going to see a big city, right? I'm like, wow. So Detroit was like, God, am I? You know, and I was, I was even like, I was nervous then. I got sick. I got sick again. I got pneumonia again when I went there because it was like I really, really sick. But uh, just to be in the first game, the first practice, man, it was intense. And I really didn't play that much. I think I played like seven, eight minutes a game the first year. But the coach loved me so much because I, I worked so hard. And I, I, you know, I ran up and down the court and did all those crazy things, you know, jumping, diving the stands, doing this, doing that. And the coach was like, wow, do you, do you always like this? I'm like, like what? He said, the way you run, the way you hustle, the way you do this, you always like this? I said, yep. I said, I don't know any other way to play. That's the only way to play, I play it like that, you know, because I, like I told you, it comes from, from, from living with those people. Plus how the way they worked and how they did it, their livelihoods and stuff like that. So I learned it by working hard with them and uh, in, in college. So, and uh, I think he, that right there, just like more like history than Chuck Davis just started taking a liking to me. So taking a liking to me. So. And it's because of your work ethic. Yep. Magic yeah. once told me that when he got to camp, 
I said, how did you figure out how to make an impact? He said, well, you're looking at all these great players, and the only way to make an impact is to over-deliver. So I would get there at 7 a.m., the coaches would roll in at 9, and they'd be like, why is this kid here? And after, like, seven practices where he showed up two hours early, they said to the whole team, look, why is Magic, he's a rookie, why is he coming in two hours early, and you guys are coming in when we're coming in? From now on, everybody's coming in at 7. And he said people didn't like him at first, but he felt like he had to change the work ethic and the culture because he wasn't going to be able to change them with his words. And so it's the same thing with you. Your work ethic got them working harder. No, no, no. I think my work ethic um, reassured them that, you know, they got a good they got a good uh, individual that, that want to go out there and play and win. And I think Isaiah, Joe Dumars, Bill Embiid, Nick Mahon, you know, everybody that's on the team, Vinny Johnson, they looked at me and said, man, you will have a nice career, but it's the way you play, you play hard. You play hard, and you, and you just you don't think about the game. You play it. You play the game, and it's a while. And Isaiah took it like it to me too. He said, "You you gonna like being here because we gonna we gonna go we gonna win championships here." I said, "Okay." So I I, knew, I was more like I was too green at the time. I didn't know anything but Oklahoma or Texas and stuff like that. Everybody supposed to love each other, do all the stuff like that. So, and every game I was playing more and more with the team because it would. Um, my activities were. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Now, what was it like? Here's a guy who literally has an MVP trophy on a curb. He has nothing. And then you get the contract from Detroit. And even though you were a second-round draft pick, you still make significant money. This is the first time you have money in a bank account. How do you react to that? Are you the kind of guy who goes crazy and spends everything? Or are you the kind of guy who just pretends like he has nothing? <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. It was way not like that. So my first three years, I didn't make anything. I made like a hundred and ten thousand. But a hundred and ten—you just said you got a card with twenty dollars in it. It was like you won the lottery. Now you have a hundred and ten thousand. It's a difference, you know. It's a difference. So it's a way different thing. But even then, when I had this contract, I had to still work in the summertime. So it wasn't enough, enough money to live in NBA style. You had to work in the summertime. Absolutely. Doing what? Just odd things, you know, going to you know, being in basketball camps, you know, just making money to live. I didn't even have a place in. I had a little small apartment, and then I had to go back home and live with my mother. Even though, you know, I'm an NBA, I still live with my mother then. Did you send your mother money then when you? No, 
Oh, you had, to, you, had to, you had to take care of yourself first, right? Yeah. And I, just, I was, I was just barely, just barely getting by, you know. So you know, after taxes. And that's the most amazing thing is that when you start making money, you don't have anything, and you start making six figures, and you're thinking, hey, I may, oh, I still don't have any money. I say I don't money. It was like you know, you, after taxes, you get like sixty thousand. I hope you don't mind me asking this, but when you were in high school, you weren't really that great with the ladies. Oh, no, I know that, but I mean, but when you got into the NBA, what changed from an introvert? to an extrovert it was all good man i mean once you become established as far as money wise a lot of girls will come out no matter what you look like or how you how you do it i mean it's just a natural instinct for people to, to want to be around money especially athletes but what was the thing that flipped the switch from shy reserved guy to guy who had a outgoing wonderful exuberant personality and so much outward love and a guy who women really love being around. What happened? It was it was like that. I mean, I just think that you know, once you people start to see what type of player you are, because you go like to L.A. the Clippers. I mean, the stadiums like that, and, and women sort of like, well, that guy's he's a nice body. Yes, and that's a nice this. He's a nice that. He got tones and stuff like that. And I never really was into the girls until like I mean like like that until like third year in the league, you know, because I used to go out with John Sally a lot, and he was all into girls. And I was just going to go hang out with him, and then girls would come around, and, you know, so. Were you and Sally hang out all the time? All the time. For so, the first, I think the first three years we hung out, I mean, all the time during the season, we'd go out to eat, and uh, we, you know, we played on the same team, and, and like I said, it was, it was a good experience for me that first three years in Detroit. Were you competitive with him on the court? Like, when he saw you getting minutes, was it like, that's minutes coming out of my... No, he did. when we first got drafted, we went to do the press conference in Detroit. They asked me, so what do you think? What do you think about being drafted by Detroit Pierce in 25th? I said, I don't know what they was thinking about because I'm way better than him. That's the first thing that came out of my mouth. <laughs> that's the first thing that came out of my mouth right there. And John, he said, man, that's all right. Got it. Speed round. I'm going to say something. First thing that comes to your mind. It could be anything, one word, anything. Jordan. Great. Larry Bird. <laughs> Unique. Magic. Magic. Madonna. Great. Phil Jackson. Father. Chuck Daly. Father figure. Scotty Pippen. Unique. Charles Barkley. Fat. <laughs> and last one, since you were on The Celebrity Apprentice, oh, yeah. Donald Trump. I say genius. Your proudest professional moment in basketball? Playing the NBA. That's my proudest moment, just playing the NBA. And people thought you couldn't make it and, uh, and persevering in the NBA. After all these years, you know, starting as a rookie, playing only seven minutes to winning championships in three years. That was my proudest moment. It's been the NBA. God, your biggest disappointment in your career and how you used it to fuel yourself to get to the next level. Well, my biggest disappointment, that's too easy. My biggest disappointment was when my wife at the time took my child, took my cars, burned my clothes and stuff like that. Biggest disappointment is she drove across country with my child. And uh, that was my biggest disappointment. But I think that right, that right there actually fueled my fire. So that was my, big, my biggest disappointment, but that right there actually boosted my uh, mentality. Now I started to realize how life was.
and how life is, how bad it is, especially when making being in the pros and being successful, how it can turn from good to ugly real quick and still trying to focus on playing basketball at the same time. So that really right there actually built me up mentally. So that was my, my good and the bad story right there. And what advice would you have for the young person who's sitting on a curb somewhere in the projects with an award they got or an award they didn't get and what they can do to figure out a way to get to the next level and have the kind of career that you've had? you got a lot of outlets right now. you got a lot of outlets for kids to do a lot of things now. And you got the combines, you got the Nike tour, you got the Adidas tour, you got everything in the world to put you in on that level. And now you'll know if you can play basketball or not unless once you go play against the greatest players on the planet. You go like you're 15 years old, you go play with the best 15, 16, 17 year old kids around the world. And you'll know when you come back and say, wow, I can actually play with these guys. And that right there would just increase your, your mind frame and say, wow, if I could just keep this up, keep this up, keep this up, maybe I will make the NBA. A lot of players don't make the NBA every year. A lot of players don't because it's only maybe 60, 70 players a year make it out of thousands and thousands and thousands of players around the world. So you gotta just you gotta look at your vision and say, well, if I can make if I can't make the NBA, maybe I can make the D League, maybe I can go make the European League, maybe I can make this league. But as long as you know that you can actually play in a league that has maybe from C to A, hey, you made it. To me, you made it. Awesome. Dennis Rodman, this has been genius. You've been amazing. I only thought that I would have like a few minutes with you. You gave me everything. You gave me so much time, and I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Cool, brother. Next time. Thank you. Next time. All right. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Conjuring Mind. Heading reads, all aspiring and professional artists should listen to this five stars. So much is learned from Barry Katz's interviews with people in the business. He asks all the right questions and brings out some of the best in people. Highly recommended. All right. Thank you so much, Conjuring Mind. You are a winner. I just want to let you know if you ever want to get a gift for somebody special, you can do so at our merch store at berrycats.com. We have a ton of shirts in many different colors with a plethora of the most impactful quotes from the podcast that have resonated with you throughout the years. I know you're going to like them a lot. They're really, really special and of the highest, highest quality. And it's a special gift from me to you. For any item you choose, you can take an extra $5 off by just typing in the promo code Barry. So just go to BarryCats.com, to the store, check it out. I know you won't be disappointed. And have a great, great holiday season. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary 
surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out. We have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com. Check it out. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.